Some important milestones have passed during the pandemic blur of the last few years. The 50th anniversary of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, was won. Created by the Occupational Safety and Health, that's OSH Act of 1970, NIOSH, one of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, was established as a, quote, separate and independent research program to create objective scientific research findings in the field of occupational safety and health. Today's episode of Stats and Stories focuses on using epidemiological, statistical, and biological information to protect workers. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is the production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as a panelist is Regina Nuzzo, professor at Gallaudet University and freelance science writer. Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest today is occupational health researcher Paul Schulte. Schulte was the director of the Division of Science Integration and co-manager of the Nanotechnology Research Center at NIOSH. Dr. Schulte has 40 years of experience in conducting and developing guidance on occupational cancer, nanomaterials, risk communication, workplace well-being, and genetics. He also has examined the convergence of occupational safety and health in green chemistry and sustainability. He's the co-editor of the textbook Molecular Epidemiology, Principles and Practices, and he currently serves on the International Advisory Board of the Annals of Occupational Hygiene. Dr. Schulte has developed various frameworks for addressing the aging workforce, burden of occupational disease and injury, well-being of the workforce, and translation research in synthetic biology and occupational risk. Paul, thank you so very much for being with us today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. I really uh, was looking forward to this. Oh, us, us too. Well, Paul, to start our conversation off, could you talk a little bit about the difference between NIOSH and OSHA? I mean, I think a lot of people get those confused. So why don't you help help set that set us straight? Well, you, you alluded to it in your opening. Uh, we were both formed under the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. And around that time, people finally essentially got fed up with the fact that many workers were dying from occupational hazards or, or made sick or being injured. And it was time to get a concerted national effort to address that. And so they uh, were able to pass the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And then what they did was they divided the responsibilities because as you well know, occupational safety and health is not just a, a public health science kind of effort. It's, it's a highly charged political effort. And so to deal with that, they put the science in one side, in one entity, and that was called the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH. And they put the enforcement and the development of regulations in the other side. And that was the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is part of the Department of Labor. NIOSH was in the Department of Health and Human Services or, or its predecessor. So we're in two separate, we were in two separate um, cabinet departments. We worked together, but we were separate. Again, just to note, I no longer, I am now retired from NIOSH after 47 years, and I'm a consultant now, but I, I don't speak for NIOSH, and anything I say is my own uh, opinion. So, Paul, I'm curious. You just said you retired after 47 years. So were you at NIOSH in the very beginning of its formation? Uh, no, I was... Um, I was about five years into its history. 
in government time, uh, the law passed in 70, the show didn't really get on the road to about 72. Uh, so by the time I got there in 75, uh, it was early days, but I'm not considered what are called the NIOSH pioneers. I'm just an old timer. I'm curious how this idea of health and safety has changed since the 70s. What is different? You know, I'm, I'm picturing different types of jobs, different people, different environments. What are we dealing with now that we're not dealing with then? Well, in, in, that's a good question. Indeed, I, uh, I did a blog a couple of years back where I depicted five eras of occupational safety and health. But the, the most, and, and in the old, old days, you can go back to the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks, uh, and then you can go up through the industrial era in, in, in uh, Britain. Uh, but around 1970, the major concerns were the hard physical hazards, exposure to chemicals, traumatic injuries, heavy physical uh, uh, effects. Uh, those kinds of things. Since then, there's been an evolution to the point that now we're talking about total worker health. So we've evolved to not just talking about physical, chemical, and, and biologic hazards, but talking more about psychological hazards, psychosocial hazards, um, and overarching concepts like well-being and total worker health. So we're taking a more holistic view now, whereas back in the 70s and 80s, the problems were so acute, uh, just dealing with those kinds of problems was was the, the high priority. Can, can I follow up just to drill down a little bit more on, on the question that Regina raised? And that, and Paul, you alluded to some of these hard chemical, you know, sort of exp explicit, specific exposure to a single chemical in a certain industrial context. Can you give kind of some examples of, of that? You know, I'm thinking like benzene or some of these other decisions that were early on with regulation. And then some of the recent stuff, when you're talking about psychosocial, can you talk a little bit more like, you know, how does stress play out in that? I mean, all of us that are coming out of the pandemic, I think, have thought you know, the whole work environment was a stressful one as a consequence. So can you talk about a little bit about sort of examples of the early types of explorations that were being done in occupational safety and health and some of the more recent ones? Well, indeed, you've identified it. Uh, some of the high volume chemicals in in society, in commerce, many are are known to be highly toxic, and particularly uh, toxic in the area of cancer, carcinogenic. It was also in the 1970s when, when the whole understanding of chemical carcinogenesis was coming into under into play and how chemicals could impact uh, the nuclear structure of, of cells and, and lead to carcinogenic responses. So early on, uh, the, the, the first uh, recommended standard that NIOSH did was for asbestos. And clearly, asbestos is one of the was one of the big substances in commerce and uh, utilized going back uh, for decades and left in its wake millions of workers uh, with uh, lung disease, uh, both uh, carcinogenic and non-carcinogenic uh, 
various kinds of lung diseases. There were other major things like benzene. All the solvents pretty much have neurologic problems. So solvents were, were a big deal. And then certainly traumatic injuries, workers getting uh, arms cut off, limbs cut off, you know, fingers, uh, all that was a serious thing. And and also early on, noise was understood to be a serious hazard. So these are the kind of things that uh, were the emphasis in the 1970s. Okay. Then you can progress to where we are today, where there was a, a body of uh, research started in the 70s, Karasik's work and others, about job demands and job control leading to stressful situations, leading to physical and, and psychological impacts. And so that is the progression now to more psychosocial hazards and uh, dealing with them. And then uh, a more, as I said before, a more holistic view of uh, well-being of workers. So it's no longer the case that the dirtiest jobs are the most dangerous then? Well, I, I use the, the concept of a, of a mosaic. We're in a mosaic of, of occupational hazards where we still have the classic ones of the past. And we may have them uh, as they were, or we may have them uh, old hazards in new situations, but they're still, we know about them. But so those still exist, but now we have all kinds of newer hazards. And, and so the dirty jobs are still the dirty jobs, but there's some new kinds of jobs that they may not look dirty, but they can be still quite hazardous to workers. Give me some examples of that. What is a, a stressful, dangerous job that's dangerous because of its psychosocial stresses? Well, uh, people who uh, have to uh, work 24-7, who, who can be on call by their supervisor, by their boss at almost any time. Some cases where the boss really expects them to answer, some cases where they put it, the boss puts out a message and the person feels compelled to answer, even though the boss isn't necessarily expecting it. So you get this, you get this stress that can have then physiologic blood pressure effects, other kinds of physical effects, and can lead to uh, anxiety, depression, burnout, in some cases, suicidal ideation. Uh, you, you can see some serious uh, mental health issues. And, and one of the things uh, and that we've seen with the pandemic is that what we expect to occur increasingly in the future has been accelerated to be happening now with the pandemic, that people working alone uh, under 24-7 uh, type of conditions in many cases. You know, just to, to you said that NIOSH is, described NIOSH as kind of this research entity that's exploring these, these hazards. And the idea that hazard has evolved over 50 years is a, seem, is a pretty compelling idea. So can you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which you know, you would explore, you, not, not necessarily you, but you as well, but, but how, how NIOSH has, has explored these early hazards that you talked about in the 70s when, when it was formed to now, it seems like it's going to be a lot harder to study these, these more uh, complicated, cumulative types of milieu of, of hazards. 
Well, indeed. And um, in the in the 70s and 80s, in the early days of NIOSH and, and in occupational safety and health research in general, there was essentially a, a, a main effect that was looked for in, in research. And everything else was considered a confounder or noise. And, and so the, the, the approaches uh, were to control for those confounders and, and look at, at for the main effect. We've grown to a point now where, where we appreciate their simultaneity of insults to a worker, some of which are directly related to work, some of which are totally not related to work in another that their origin is outside of work, some of which are, uh, and the WHO in 1984 established this concept called work-relatedness, which is where personal factors and outside factors could exacerbate occupational hazards. So we now have a more of an understanding of there's a simultaneity of insults. And, and then we have, we've seen growing, particularly in the environmental health field, the whole concept of cumulative risk assessment, where you not only look at one hazard, you look at the multiplicity of hazards that are occurring at one time and then over time. So, and then I put it back to you all, what are the statistical approaches that we're going to need to sort this out? It's beyond my uh, knowledge level, but what I do know is that I think things like multi-level modeling are, are going to be one of the tools and departures from that, but there's probably other uh, ways to think about this. And I think that's going to be uh, one of the big challenges for the, the, the statistics and epidemiologic areas. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is occupational safety and health researcher, Paul Schulte. In a recent commentary, Paul, you and co-authors talked about an expansion of this traditional occupational and safety framework to consider both what horizontal things that you've been discussing, these personal risk factors and socio and economic risk factors, as well as vertical components, the idea of pre-work, work, and post-work. Uh, can you talk about why this has been a very important expansion to consider in terms of the framework for evaluating occupational safety and health? Well, this is, an, this is a, a concept that not, is not necessarily accepted in the field. This is a concept that I and colleagues are promoting because this is what we see is, is needed. Uh, just the discussion we've had thus far of the, of the change from the, the chemical, physical, and biologic hazards of the 70s to a, a more the psychosocial hazards of, of more recent years and the need for holistic approaches to deal with them uh, led us to think that the field has to expand, uh, partly for, for defense of the field and for its, its stature as a field within society. Occupational safety and health has to be able to speak to the problems of the day. And the problems of the day are not exposure to one particular chemical. That is a problem not to diminish that. But the, the problems are that we have a huge mental health crisis in this country, exacerbated by work, accelerated by the pandemic, and, and, and characteristic of a response to uh, working environments uh, 
that, as I said, are 24-7, that blur the distinction between work and family, that uh, in, put a intense burden on people such that never before have we seen such prominence of the terms resignation or burnout even. And burnout's been talked about for decades, but not to the extent that it is now. And, and so the occupational safety and health field has to be positioned to talk about all those things and address those things. And since they encompass more than just what's in the workplace, they have to have a broader view. NIOSH envisioned this 15 or so years ago and promoted the concept of total worker health. Dr. John Howard, the director of NIOSH, envisioned what was going to happen and was a strong proponent of thinking about total worker health, which is another way of packaging all the things we've been talking about. And that is, uh, so the field needs to, to expand and it needs to expand in a number of ways. You talked, John, about the model we put out where we talked about uh, what we call the horizontal expansion where you need to think about personal risk factors as well as work risk factors. And you need to think about social and economic effects as well as, as just uh, work-related effects. But then we talk about a longitudinal expansion and that has a number of components. One is that instead of thinking about one job in a person's life, we need to think about their whole working life. So we call that the working life continuum. And within that, well, there, there's growing data that people in their lives are going to have many jobs, not just one or two. It's not, uh, certainly it's not, you work for one place for 50 years and you get a gold watch. The, the last data, which is about uh, 10, 12 years ago had people with, with over 12 jobs uh, in their lives. And that, that was an underestimate and they had truncated the, the, the data. So it, it's clearly going to be more. So the time when people work can be thought of as they're in work and they're going to go to leave work. So they're either going to do it because of some duress or stress, or uh, they're afraid to leave because of the precarity of their situation. Then they leave, they're unemployed, then they get another job and, then, and so forth. Occupational safety and health has to study that whole process. They have to study work, underemployment, unemployment, precarious work, and, and over a working lifetime. Also, occupational safety and health needs to focus not only just on a specific work site, but on the workforce as a whole and talk about the quality of the workforce and, and issues within the workforce. And then just the epitome of the model, the top of the, of the arrow is an overarching concept of well-being. And everybody uses well-being in the conjunctive phrase, health and well-being, but nobody defines it. And so if we're going to use it as a variable in occupational safety and health research or as a target indicator, we have to operationalize it. And that's where, that's where we are now. And so that's what we were calling for in the expanded focus. So, Paul, the sorts of things that you're talking about with um, stress and across the lifespan these sound social. This is more social science and psychology. It also sounds harder to measure 
than your exposure to benzene. How are you able to measure these things in a way that you can actually use the data? And does technology help here? What, what can you do to get that data? Well, you said the secret word, social science. The field of occupational safety and health historically has been made up of physicians, toxicologists, nurses, engineers, industrial hygienists, statisticians, epidemiologists, and lawyers, and eventually psychologists. Uh, We're we're calling in the expanded focus uh, papers the need for more social science to be part of occupational safety and health. Maybe even to the point that we have to change the distribution of skill sets within the field to be more predominantly uh, people who can look at psychosocial factors, including economics particularly. And we need more of those kinds of people. We also need two other things. One is that the whole field needs to adopt systems thinking approaches. And you're familiar with the literature on systems thinking. And it's it, it, it again, is another way of holistically characterizing uh, situations. And, and there's a whole there's subsets of systems thinking and so forth. So that's one thing. The other thing is transdisciplinarity that we've talked for decades about interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary, but we really need to get to transdisciplinary approaches. And that means that different disciplines actually collaborate. They respect each other's paradigms. They learn each other's language, and then they jointly attack a problem using the strengths of their disciplines. Now, how we're going to, to get to your core question, how we're going to analyze the complexities of the world of work uh, as we've just been describing it is indeed the challenge uh, of our time. And uh, there there are models of how people have started to approach that, but uh, I'm sure we'll want to ratchet them up. As you were talking about this, Paul, the the thing that came to mind for me was, you know, in the past, it was very much about kind of controlling or setting limits on exposure to it seems like now that I'm in the way you're describing what you're this this system this framework is more of a positive promotional component you know moving from controlling to promoting you know controlling exposure so that to minimize damage to promoting a context in in which you have this outcome of whether it's well-being or health or however you're defining this outcome as being done. Is that on target? Am I missing it or am I hitting it? Dead on. Uh, My my colleague uh, of recent years, one of my colleagues is uh, Dr. George Delclos, the University of uh, Texas School of Public Health. And so we've been working together on this expanded focus uh, model. And the the old... uh, paradigm was we want to bring a worker home from work the same way they went to work. George has stated it a different way. We want to bring a worker home from work better than when they went to work. Better conceptually in the sense that uh, we, we know work is healthy for you. Good, decent work is healthy for you. Decent work stimulates people. It gives them a sense of dignity. It gives them uh, uh, money. It gives them lots of good things. 
if it's bad, we, we know the bad side. We talk about that. That's what occupational safety and health deals with. Uh, but work can be made, uh, total worker health in part is the merging of prevention and promotion work. And I'm not talking about gyms at work. That may be a piece of it, but uh, we're talking about participation in the decision-making process of your work, autonomy to, to have some decision latitude in your work gives the worker a feeling of sufficiency, a feeling of, you know, satisfaction with their work. And they enhance are, are made better by that. These are sort of non-specific terms, but uh, made better than if they were, uh, if they were downtrodden. So I'm picturing an app, tell me if this is crazy, I'm picturing an app that like the old sensors that would measure how much radiation I was getting, you know, inside the, the plant. Now I'm picturing an app that's telling me how much stress I'm getting, uh, whether it's time to take a break. I'm sitting down too much. I, uh, all the accumulation of everything that's going on in my life. Is that, is that nuts? What, what can individual workers be gaining from all of this research? How will it make a difference in their lives? Well, I think, I, I don't know if an app is, is possible, but the concept is, is good. To, to take stock of all the stressors that one has in their lives, and especially when they're going to and from work and in their work, and somehow if you could gauge that, it may be with an app, and then you had some sort of decision-making that you could make based on, on the feedback from that gauging uh, would allow them to make decisions that would avoid some of the more deleterious impacts of all that. So yeah, I think that's that that's right on right on track. I, I just wanted to say though um, back to the statement that maybe we wouldn't measure levels of stress the way we would like say levels of benzene we wouldn't have but possibly there are tools that will allow us to measure uh, stress or well-being certainly uh, NIOSH has just uh, come out with the WellBeQ questionnaire it's a it's a survey it's been uh, validated it's publicly available on the website designed to capture five different domains uh, related to well-being that includes both the work-related and non-work-related ones. This is this is sort of like maybe the precursor of what you're suggesting, Regina, that, uh, uh, of uh, some sort of app. And there's other ones. Um, uh, Susan Peters, I think, at Harvard has the Thrive tool. There, are, I'm sure there are many others. So thinking about how to how to capture the cumulative insults that people are experiencing. And then the, the, the challenge would be, well, what is the risk assessment that you would do with that? And what are the cut points you would make? Or what would be the ways where you say, this is too much, or this is, this is, this is okay. Um, that's part of the frontier that we're at now too. Well, well, Paul, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, this has been really fun. And uh, thanks for uh, pulling out, I think, some very important Great. points. It's our pleasure to have you have you join us. 
Um, Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.